Another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me, as always, is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm very excited today yes. because uh, we have a guest on today that I've been excited to talk to and about for a long time. So, without further ado, thank you, Adam Mosley, for uh, being with us here today. <laughs> I'm, I'm clapping myself. That, thank you for having me. <laughs> it's great, yeah. great, great, great to be here. Well, thanks for Good. thanks for doing this. We appreciate it. Yes, right, absolutely. We we were just talking here before we started recording, but the last time you and I saw each other it was at least a decade ago. So we have yeah. a fair bit of stuff to kind of catch up on here, I think. Um, It'll only take a minute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, all right. Well, that's that. So thank you for being here, Adam. We're, we're good. Yeah. Uh, Pleasure. But uh, like we used to do, or like we like to do, or a phrase like that when we have a guest on is, for those who are not aware of you and your history, can you give us a little bit of a background of who you are and what you have been doing? Yeah, I'll try and do the the shorter version. Let's do um, the short version. Yeah, yeah, because, <laughs> because, <laughs> because it's forty five years. So on day one, this is what no. Um, <laughs> so I come from Brighton on the south coast of England. I'm now an Ameri Brit, and I've been living in LA permanently for twenty five years. I believe I first came to LA in nineteen eighty six. I grew up in a musical family. I think. It, I've tried to work out, you know, how is it that I've come to do what I do? And I've been mm. making music, as I said, for 45 years. Whew, that's a long time. It is, yeah. I think one of the most important things was that I was born into a musical family. My dad was a jazz musician, played jazz guitar, upright bass, and electric bass. My mum was at home looking after the three of us, my twin brother and my sister, and I all day she'd be singing along with the radio. My dad during the Second World War had been in the Air Force and he'd been a radio mechanic in, oh, a, wow. in the RAF. So the whole house was wired with speakers. We had speakers everywhere, stereo speakers from the hi-fi in the lounge into the kitchen. So if we were eating at the kitchen table or my mom was at the sink cooking or watching my brother and I playing in the backyard, music was always in stereo. And I think it was one of my first recollections is always hearing music in glorious stereo. Wow. And hearing it through hi-fi and just being aware of the sound and the depth of the sound and right. and just how sound felt. But I was too young to know that. My mom would be singing along with Ella and her favorite Sarah Vaughan or Sinatra or Pericoma, whatever. My parents loved big band jazz, Benny Goodman, Dizzy Gillespie, Count Basie. My dad also obviously loved the whole bebop period. And loved Latin American music. So that's it was, quite the cross section you got going there. It it really was. Whether it was like more pop Sergio Mendes or Hope Output, which is an amazing name in my story now, or Gilberto Gil, you know, the great Latin albums, the great Brazilian writers. So I just always grew up with music. I never used the term lucky except in one example. Because I I believe that luck may be a factor, but you, anything that happens in your life basically is because you created it right. without getting too hippy-dippy. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> I mean, we are in LA. But I think the one thing 
that's lucky is that I was born into a musical family and I have a sister who's five years older. I was born in 1957. There, I've given it away. But <laughs> <laughs> so when the Beatles broke, I was like five, six years old and my sister was 10. And that was just perfect because right. it just seemed like every day my sister was borrowing an album or coming home with another vinyl and it was the Beatles or the Stones or the Who or the Kinks or then it was Zeppelin or Hendrix or Carol King or Joni Mitchell or James Taylor or Crosby Stills or Pink Floyd, etc., etc. So and was the movie that Cameron Crowe did, what was the music movie that he did about the you, band Stillwater? You are home. That's the best line. Yes, you are home. But it, it sounds like he wrote it about you. <laughs> It, it's, <laughs> well, court case coming on. <laughs> very similar experience, very similar. So I had bands at school. We were crap. I was banned from learning music. I'm. What? Oh, no. How do you get banned <laughs> yeah. from learning music? Well, I, I, I went to a very good English grammar school, all boys school, 650 boys, a very good Protestant British school and as a East European 100% Jewish immigrant and being one of seven other Jewish kids there we weren't very popular except for being chased and and caught mm. um, oh dear. and my music teacher didn't want didn't allow me to study music it was that simple so that's, that's crazy um, yeah so I would just jam along with records uh, around the age of 13 my, what flipped it for me two things one, obviously, the third factor, obviously, my dad and his influence as a musician and instruments being around and the instruments being available. They weren't locked away. So mm. I could pick up my dad's electric bass or I wasn't tall enough for his upright. But there were just instruments around and always music. But then two things happened around 1970, 69, 70, was I heard Chicago mm. the, with Terry Kath, the guitarist who... Some people know as Jimi Hendrix's favorite guitarist, mm -hmm. uh, similar wah-wah style. I heard Terry Kath, which made me wanted to maybe want to be a rock star in a band. <laughs> and and I heard Michael Brecker play tenor saxophone. And that made me want to play an instrument. So wow. that's that's two very different instruments. Which one did you go with? I went for saxophone. I never thought I would get my head around guitar. Mm. Why is I that? Just the like the configurations and the hand shapes. I never thought I'd be able to do it. I, from my dad's bass, I was like my brain had gone into kind of like linear kind mm -hmm. of playing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And I never thought I'd get my head around piano or get my head around guitar, which was like the shapes and things. And saxophone again was more of a linear instrument. And also there was an explosion of horn sections on records. You know there was tower of uh, power. Tower of Power, Blood, Sweat and Tears, a band called Ides of March, which had a huge hit called Vehicle around that time. Chicago, obviously, with this rocky bike, this band of biker dudes, you know, with cut off denim <laughs> tops and big biceps and full of tats and everything. Suddenly, horns were on every record, uh, but in on rock records and rock jazz records. And this was the convergence of the world that I'd kind of known. Yeah, that's what led to that. So it was an amazing time for like horn sections with rock music and this convergence of all these things that I was hearing and being influenced by. 
put a band together at school. We were terrible. We were really crap. And I thought, well, look. I <laughs> as thought, most school bands are. <laughs> yeah. You know, to be fair. And as my cousin still really enjoys telling telling me how bad my band was, <laughs> obviously I decided that it couldn't be me. It must be because in Brighton at the time there weren't lots of good musicians around. So obviously I needed to move to London. To do that, I took a gap year, a year off, off of school before initially planning to go to university. And I worked on construction sites and saved up enough money. And for most of the year, Chris, you may recall that I went to live in Sweden. I mean, you wouldn't know from yeah. then, but from, <laughs> from what no, later I'm, stories. I, yeah. You were telling me, yeah. So how old are you at this point when you decide I, to, to I, move to London? 17, 18. Okay. I'd, I'd already worked my holidays. I was working for the language exchange school called EF, which is actually a Swedish company, Europeiska Familia Skolen. So I'll write that out if I didn't pronounce it properly. <laughs> Chris will slap you if you know. Europeiska, I think. Anyway, went to live in Sweden for a year. I'd traveled before. I'd been broke when I was traveling. I was eating out of trash bins and stuff. So this time I knew get jobs with food. So I got three jobs working every day with food. One of the jobs was working in a restaurant. I walked in to get the jobs washer up. As the assistant chef was storming out, and I became the assistant chef. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the main chef said, are you, you know, do you have experience? And I said, yeah, that's amazing. All my papers, you know, with immigration at the moment in Stockholm. But as soon as I get my certificates back, I'll show you. And I got hired instead of washer up. I was the sous chef and started that day. The relevance of that was after my kind of like eight, nine months in Stockholm, came back to London, went to university for a year and studied law. Mm put a band together and we were still crap. So I thought, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought, oh no, maybe it's not the town I'm in. Maybe it's more to do with me. So I thought, I've just got to know how to do this. I did the year of law school, hated it, failed everything except contract law. I came third in contract, which was one of the best things I ever could have done for stepping into the music business. Sure. Quit law school, became a driver in the clothes business, delivering dresses for six months while I wrote a hundred letters to studios, I got one reply. But the wow. hundred is the perseverance of getting to that yeah. one. Yeah. And the, the one reply, I knew nothing about the studio except that they offered me an interview. I went to the studio and the studio manager said, you know, why did you write to us? And I said, well, you know, I'd like to be a record producer, please. You know, do you have any jobs going? And he kind of like right. laughed, <laughs> laughed. And, and he said, well, do you know anything about the studio? And I said, mm, not really. And I said, well, a few people have come from here and they've done okay. But I, I see from your letter that you've been a chef and also done construction. And I said, yeah. He said, great. We're enlarging the c control room. We're putting, <laughs> okay. new, we're putting in a new console which turned out to be a, a Trident A-range. Ooh, So wow. we're putting in a new console. The window, the control room is too small, and the control room is too small, so we're expanding it into, like, open space because it was a control room that was upstairs looking down, a bit like Abbey Road 2, the Beatles mm. room. Nice. So I got high, and he said, and I'm effed off buying takeout food for, i got 15 people working up. It's too expensive, so I want you to cook for everyone at night. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. He, he said, you're, on the top floor, on the fifth floor, you'll find that there's a, a four-ring stove with an oven, 
I want you to cook three course meals for 15 people every night. Do construction during the day. Start at 9 a.m. at 4 in the afternoon. Come to me. Tell me how much money you need to go down the markets in Soho. Buy food. I want you to cook, serve, clean up, put everything away, then go back to construction. This is so, beyond being a glorified gopher. <laughs> it, it, it was It was below. Even I, I found a level, an entry level in in life, basically, but an entry level into a studio where even the T-Boys gave me shit. You know? Wow. <laughs> it, it, That's funny. My, my, my position wasn't officially recognized as a human life form. Oh, no, I, 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 had to, I had to grow into that, but that's what I did. Six days a week, 9 a.m. to 3 a.m. How long did it take to build though? that room? They'd started building the room and enlarging it, but I remember being one of the 12 people carrying the frame of that Trident A-range into the room. And the big reveal, the studio was Trident Studios uh, uh -huh. in, in Soho, London. I knew nothing about it. I sat down at the piano. I thought no one was around and someone came screaming down the stairs going, who the F do you think you are? You know, touching that piano. And I thought, oh my God, that's it. I'm done. Game over. <laughs> and I was like almost in tears. And then like liquids coming out of any part of the body where they could <laughs> come out in any form. I thought this is it, game over. And he said, do you have any idea what's who's played on that piano? What gives you the right to touch it? But by which time I, could, I was whimpering, you know. Yeah. And, and he reeled off the songs that had been recorded on that piano, which included Hey Jude, The Beatles' White Album, Louis Transformer, David Bowie's first three albums, Ziggy Stardust. Wow. Hunky Some Dory. Serious oh history Dory. going on on that yeah. piano. Also, Elton John's first three albums, the first two Peter Gabriels, the first three Genesis. <laughs> no wonder they were freaking out. <laughs> yeah, T-Rex, Super Tramp, later Carly Simon, You're So Vain, Harry Nilsson, Nilsson Schmilsson, and it went on and on. This was, the, this was like the, the legendary Trident 70s era. This was January 1978, I got hired. And after three months, I didn't know what was going to happen. The construction was finished, the room was ready, and I got promoted to T-Boy. And it was like, yes. And then <laughs> you touched the piano. <laughs> yeah, I nearly got fired. But that was it. My first four years from January 12, 1978, until Trident closed at the very end of 1981. So those were my four formative years. Um, wow. at the latter stage of the original Trident era. So the guys that I was learning under, first of all, cooking for, then bringing cups of tea or coffee for, and then I became a tape-op, then senior tape-op assistant engineer, then like co-engineering, then starting to mix and co-produce and then produce. And that was the typical journey. How many years um, did that take overall? That sounds like a long journey I, there. I was actually the fastest person in at Trident to progress through that stage. I went from walking in the door to tape up within nine months, which... Wow. When you look, say which, walking in the door, when you were walking in to construct the new studio and cook. Yeah, to get okay. hired. Yeah. And normally that was going to be at least an 18-month journey at Trident. Trident was much more experimental and... Everyone flew on by the seat of their pants, basically. Everyone made it up as they went along. Uh, Abbey Road, that would take you maybe three years mm. to actually, mm. before you possibly got to be a tape operator and run the tape machine. 
but at Trident, I managed to, to do that. One, the competition was so fierce that you couldn't afford one mistake. I had a little bit of resistance that, like I'd had at school. So I knew that I wasn't popular with some people, including the manager who after six months told me that if he had known that I was Jewish, he'd never have hired me. Oh, really? Jeez. Yeah. So he even he, at this point that that's yeah he he wow. did he he didn't say it quite as politely as that. Um, <laughs> oh Jesus! Yeah, and it was like fine, right? I'll show fine. you the type of yeah. thing. Yeah, and I did. The day he got fired, I stood at the front door of the studio, which led onto the little alleyway that Trident was in. I stood there all day waiting for him to come downstairs. So and that you could hit the door with his ass on the yeah. way out. <laughs> yeah, and no, wow. It, Exactly. He came down with his, his sad cardboard box and a few drinks in, you know, mm-hmm. with all the different people in the building. And he walked down the stairs, walked towards the door. I put my hand out. He put his hand out to shake it. I swung it around and grabbed the door handle. And oh. just opened, the, opened the door handle and gave him a thumb and said, be seeing you then. Oh, nice. Yeah. That had to feel pretty good, yeah? It did. And by not doing that earlier, I'd kept my job. I'd started to build my career. And kept my eye on the price, there you which go. is which is the most important thing is, you know, setting your goals and dealing with whatever shit comes up because shit's going to come up. Sure, right? You know, yeah. Um, that's I mean that's quite a journey there, Adam. I mean, just the um, a couple of things that that just strike me that are obviously that perseverance being the first one of them, mm. right? And not you know going into a situation where they say, well, we got construction and you got to cook. And sort of the mindset there again, like, yeah, I, I'm fine. I'll do that as long as I get it shot yeah. type of thing, right? Yeah. My German immigrant grandmother, me being the first grandson to go to university and law school, I went with my twin brother, but I'm five minutes older. So technically I was the first one. <laughs> right. she, she never got over the fact that I quit law school. Even yeah. even right. later, I, I I was involved in Roxette's first album, Look Sharp. Yeah, uh, Tw- what an 20, album mil- too. twenty million sales. That still wasn't wasn't good recognition. Enough, huh? No. Yeah, but you, you could have done something with your life. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I could have had a real I could have had a real job. Right. Oh, wow. But I, I, I tried and what one says that the people that I learned from and assisted, and it really was sit at the back of the room, run the tape machine, shut the fuck up, watch, listen, and try and figure out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. You know. But the people I was doing that with were the guys that had been on those Bowie albums. And especially in an on-off period over three years, I was working so many albums with Mike Stone, who had, again, quit his public school. that He went to public school with Prince Charles, I think. Got into Trident as a T-boy, worked his way up. Trident signed Queen to a five-hour wow to a five album deal because no one wanted Queen. The Beatles were still at Trident with the White Album mm. and the studio wanted to keep the Beatles. They'd moved from Abbey Road and Trident had got them. So Trident didn't want to keep the Beatles sweet. And I believe the story is that Brian May had become friends with McCartney and McCartney was like, liked him mm. and thought his band was kind of cool and interesting. So McCartney had asked the studio, as I believe it, if they had, could give this band some downtime, you know. So in typical music business fashion, they gave Queen downtime at like 2 a.m. in the morning to come in and do their demos. And Much like the the Beatles when they got started. Yeah, but charged them full weight and signed them to a 
and sign them to a five album deal. And Mike Stone as the junior new upcoming engineer would just put on the sessions to do the demos because no one else, you know, wanted to come in at 2 a.m. or stay after their day session and do the second one. So Mike was one of my main mentors. Peter Kelsey, who lives here in L.A., Steve W. Taylor, who is still doing phenomenal work. He lives near Bath in the west of England and has his own studio at Peter Gabriel's studio there, Real World. Right. But those guys and Mike Stone, I started off with him on four Kiss albums. That was kind of like my baptism. Mm. Right. So, okay, so I, I know that you've worked with Kiss, but but now I'm... I've, as an avid KISS fan, I, I might have to ask you to expand on that a little bit. What what time period are we talking right now? Let's go with that right after a word from our sponsors. And we're back. And we're going to shuffle on into some KISS questions, apparently, from Chris. <laughs> well, yeah. The, the first thing, what, what time period are we we're talking about right now? Um, so this is 70, probably 78 or 79 Okay, so it, yeah. things are starting to go downhill now if you're Kiss. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that was my, that's what I brought to it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 I waited down it there. No, no, no. <laughs> I think the, the peak had already been had sort of thing. Right. And it was probably starting to. So I, I was, what what, uh, <laughs> what material were you working on there? Uh, I think initially. First of all, it was double platinum. I think that's the sequence. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Mike was doing some work on that. Generally, he'd record most of the bands he was working with. He'd record, especially like the Kiss stuff, he'd record in the States. Well, that was done in New York, I would assume. Yeah. And then he'd come to London and we would do like all the overdubs. Mm. Later on with Terry Brown, it would be the same with Rush, where often they'd record in Quebec or in Wales at Rockfield, and then come to Trident and do all the overdubs, all the additional stuff, all the solos, vocals, and mix. But with Kiss, I think the first thing was assisting Mike on Double Platinum. And Chris, you'll tell me. And then they did the four solo albums. I think that's correct. Right, right. So Mike did Gene's solo album, Paul's solo album, and Peter's. I feel like he had to have done that before Double Platinum. Okay, possible. And here's the reason I, uh, why I would say this. I, no, here's the reason why I would say this. My mm-hmm. father was hired by Kiss's manager to do artwork for each one of them of their face without makeup before they ever went without makeup, and then a miniature of their actual character in front of their face. I went to go meet them in 1977 as a tiny little kid at their rehearsal spot. And they gave me at that time, all of the records that they have. Plus they gave me four solo records that were marked NFR because they hadn't been released. And that was before double platinum. So I, I have to feel like that those were done before double platinum, but they were not released until after. Oh, okay. That's possible. Yeah. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, but the yeah. release. Well, anyway, yeah, the release of the solo album was definitely after. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I'm, I'm, yeah. I do believe that they were actually recorded before because I had NFRs of all four of them before that. Amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, so sorry. G- keep going here, Adam. What? Because the Kiss lineage here is is obviously really, really important. <laughs> <laughs> 
and, 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 and my and my effect on their career as the tape officers. Oh no, <laughs> yeah. But so yeah, uh, Gene's album. I mean, they were twenty six. They were twenty six years old. Yeah, Gene's was tough. I think I can say that. Yeah. Not the easiest of things. Thankfully, uh, he was dating Cher at the time, so they were quite busy with each other. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which let us get on with the music. And then we, when we did Paul Stanley's album, i got to say that Paul's was probably one of the most fun records I ever worked on. Is that right? And Gene's wasn't. Okay. You know, but Paul was, was just fantastic. We also did that record on Graveyard Shift. We started at midnight. Oof. Every night for about three months. For how many hours? Um, wow. Full eight-hour shift? Uh, we had uh, 12. We'd go to midday. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Your sessions were always at least 12 hours if the room was being split. Sure. Otherwise, your normal working day was like 15, 16 or so. Because people were paying a day rate. Sure. You know, so they right. get the get full as much day. as they yeah. could. Yeah, literally. So... Yeah, th- th- those were some of the first records. And, and Paul was always just, he just knew he was like one of the luckiest guys, you know, in music and was a lot of fun. And yeah, really good memories. Also within that crowd, we, we were doing Paul's and, and Gene's obviously separately, but I think Mike hadn't finished Peter's album and was slipping the tracks he had to still finish. Sometimes we would jump in when no one was going to know. And we'd quickly finish something up on Peter's <laughs> album. Although I think it was meant to be Paul's session or I won't say Gene's. It was great. And at the time, they, their manager, I don't know if it was the same manager you mentioned, but it was Bill O'Coin. Who yeah, was, I was going to say it was I yeah. him. I wouldn't know. I was too point, young right? to know. Yeah. So. Yeah. All but, I know um, is that I got to meet them without their makeup on before they unmasked themselves, and I thought yeah. I was the coolest thing since sliced bread. Yeah, wait. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the first time I arrived at the studio, Gene had actually got to the studio early and was sitting in the room, and of course, no one had seen them without makeup. And he was sitting in the room in a like an armchair, in a three-piece pinstripe suit, with his hair all perfectly groomed, and snakeskin cowboy boots with his three-piece suit which was quite a striking and then he stood up and of course he was tall and his hair was even taller and <laughs> kind of a you know for a 20 year old who knew nothing it was quite it's a dom- imposing character yeah. yeah exactly i remember much later one i did in 1984 i was doing a mix a live mix of heavens on fire mm-hmm. and they needed to redo it and i needed to re-trigger the kick drum because the kick drum mic had cut out so there was mm. just a pop sounds happening from the kick mm. drum and i had to sample a kick drum from elsewhere in the show and put it into the ams delay which had a 17 second delay before it triggered the sound so you, with the tape machine you had to come off the sync head into the trigger then delay the trigger because coming off the sync head was 75 milliseconds ahead of the replay oh wow head oh, on the tape machine and then work out the difference delay the signal back but bearing in mind that the ams would take 17 seconds to spit out the trigger and replace the drum and i remember doing all of that and working on it and struggling and it was the first time i was like completely on my own on a kiss record and i was wow. only only working with gene and i remember like i've been working on the drums for like four or six hours and he suddenly just, st- he didn't say a word to me for six hours. Then he just stood up from the back of the room, walked forward and stood over me and said, is that your kick drum sound? 
Oh, <laughs> oh like, man. <laughs> and it was like, it was another whoosh moment, you know. Fl- right. Blood drains out. <laughs> yeah, fluids. Yeah, all fluids. Right. Stories like that, though, makes it, you know, he- here's a pet peeve of mine. In today's, with all the beautiful gear that we have available to us in doing any task, where people complain about that something is hard to do. You know, shouldn't oh, there be a plugin yeah. for that? You know, and then you get cases like that. It's like, yeah, where that, your math you, skills have to be ridiculous because you have to figure out the yeah. timing of the tape, the timing yeah. of the gear that's triggering, and figure out the delay that's going on. Seventeen seconds yeah. is a hefty delay. So uh, seventeen milliseconds. Seventeen milliseconds. Oh, seventeen tr- milliseconds. Okay. Yeah, to trigger the AMS drum sample, and you could sample one point two seconds of audio so you could just get a kick drum in there sure. basically with a bit of tail but you you couldn't like truncate it properly to the front so you right. also had to figure that out and again you were coming off the 75 millisecond difference between the head gaps on the sync and playback mm-hmm. heads so but i mean it was amazing it was phenomenal mind-blowing that you could now replace a kick drum sure and yeah. all you had to do was like figure out switch the time. One, yeah, that's all you had to do. And you could like this delay, you could actually sample 1.2 seconds in. It was a game changer. Hmm. You know, Out of curiosity, where, where did you get that kick sample from? Or where uh, you... it, it was from somewhere else in the show. Cause I oh, had, well, like, there was an isolated yeah, thing that you could kind of... Yeah, okay. and I, I remember that Gene wasn't very happy with the audience reaction on that part of the show of Heaven's on Fire. So mm-hmm. I also had to go to a different song. I can't remember what it was in the show. Play the audience tracks onto a two-track machine, record the audience on a two-track, and then play it back in to the version of Heaven's on Fire to beef up the audience reaction. Sure. Sounds like yeah. every Japanese live record they've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like every live album they've ever done, really. That's I mean, true. That's it's funny. From- what I've heard, and I think it's true, is like Live 2 was recorded at the soundstage at a and right? Mm. Oh. I think, yeah. Whereas and like then the they just dubbed in just all the audience. The... Yep. Makes sense. <laughs> the beauty so, of recording in hindsight, right? Yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, I mean it, it's, it, it's something I think will come up in our chat a lot, but we'll talk about this later. But I mentioned, I mean, you guys know that I teach at Her Power Put School yeah. of Music at UCLA, and I did a music production masterclass at Berkeley in Valencia, Spain. And so many music makers want to know why did those records sound so good? You know, mm-hmm. what was so special about them? One of the biggest things is that it was all about vibe. No one had a clue what they were doing. No one was technically trained in anything, especially at Trident. It was right. all that you made it up as you went along. And everyone was discovering new ways to do things. The en- engineers back then and huge, huge respect to Jeff Emmerich at Abbey Road just for what he was inventing. And I think the important thing is I love plugins. I work with technology all the time. I was quite early on, I was involved with Plugin Alliance, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Brainworks, in some of their early plugins. I love their plugins. They're so human and musical. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm a big fan of the the Plugin Alliance. And Sound toys. One of the most amazing things with sound toys is in Echo Boy, you can set your delay, you can set it to be in time with your track, you know, MIDI sync it, whatever, right. the, bu- whatever the button's going to be called. 
that right. syncs it to the BPM of your session. But then just even one example with Echo Boy, there's a dial which is either rushing or dragging. So right. they understand that it's all about feel with your delay. Now, as we're talking That's about That's a this, tie back to last week's episode right there. <laughs> Yeah, we, we actually talked about delay times and vocals and things, but but yeah. So go ahead, please. Yeah, um, we'd have like the twenty-four track machine in the room. Trident was the first studio to go eight track, which is why the Beatles went there. It was the first studio to be sixteen, the first to be twenty-four, and then the enlargement of the room when I got hired was because they were going to go forty-eight. Mm. So the second machine would be in an outside room, but then we would have four stereo machines four stereo two-track machines, which were being used as delays. So each button on the desk that was a send, you'd have like six buttons, six little white buttons to push in to send one, two, three, four, five, six, but only one gain control on oh. it. But maybe button one would send the signal from your lead guitar or the vocal or whatever you wanted to tape machine two-track one, which was maybe running at 15 IPS and you wanted it on a slow delay, on like an eighth kind of delay thing. So what we would do, the signal would be sent from the board from button one. You'd have the one gain knob to send it there. It would send to the tape machine. It would hit the record head. And then before the tape hit the playback head, we'd pull the tape off the tape machine, put it around a mic stand, and then feed the tape back to the playback head. And however much you pulled that mic stand out was the length of the delay. Right. So, how's that for mathematical? We're out five feet. Yeah, and and you know, I'd have Mike Stone going, no, no, it's on the vocal. Just take it a bit closer to the machine. And what I'd listen, I'd hear, wow, this is kind of like a, a an edgy song. And here's the the delay is actually coming back a little bit early, which is giving a bit more of a punch. But if right. it was a dreamy vocal and a dreamy guitar solo or something, he might want me to pull the mic stand out on machine number two, which might be on a quarter beat delay, but pull that out more so it was kind of lazy the way the delay was happening. Right. Mm -hmm. It was like slightly after the beat. Also the important thing, it was always done by feel, not right. by a math chart or an algorithm. And also, so feel was done by listening. But also these variables is what made everything so musical and feel so great. So I love plugins. Believe me, I don't want, it was like spinning plates. You know, it was like having <laughs> yeah. four plates spinning on sticks and you could, they were all spinning at different times and, and starting to wobble at different times. And you had to keep all four machines going. You also had to decide when am I gonna change the tape? Because as you spent all day or two days running the delays while the mix was happening, suddenly the sound would deteriorate because you were losing oxide off the tape and it would start to sound a lot warmer. So at some stage you had to change the reel of tape on maybe machine three, which meant anyone using button three on the mix, now the delay was gonna sound a lot brighter because all the top end was back, which right. meant that the delay was now gonna appear louder than it had and be more prominent. So now they had to relearn their moves because you had six buttons for sends, but only one gain for all six of them. So yeah. my, my first experience in mixing where I was allowed to sit in the mix room, we had a Trident B range, which was the same as the A range, all the same mechanics basically, except it was more set out for, for mixing. And my first experience of being invited to sit up with the grown-ups <laughs> at the mix was 
Rush, Permanent Waves. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. What an album. I know. I'd assisted on Hemispheres. They'd done that at Trident. And then even when Neil Kernan did Moving Pictures, who was a Trident guy as well, he brought it back just to verify all the mixes and just listen to everything. On the early Elton John albums, when Elton John had done his first three albums at Trident and then went to Le Chateau in France, every night they'd fly the tapes back in a private little plane from France to the Trident mix room and someone was on night shift and would put the tapes up and listen to them to make sure that what they were recording sounded okay because it was the first record they'd done. That's taking the idea of checking your mixes to the extreme right there. <laughs> yeah, it, and like going out to the car to have a listen. Sure. That takes mm -hmm. it. Yeah. 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 We need to go all the way back to this particular studio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something so, also tells me that budgets might have been a little bit different. They, they were. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A, a, a lot of factors were very different back in right. the day. Right. Yeah. But oh, um, yeah, Permanent Waves was the first album where I got to sit at the console, four people shoulder to shoulder, squashed up, 10 faders each. I was sitting on the on the end. I had channels like one through ten. The B range was a forty channel, I believe. Then it was Terry Brown, and then Getty, and then Alex. Neil never came to the overdubbing or the recording things. Often he'd be tucked away back in Canada somewhere working on the lyrics or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he found the process. Apparently he just found it a bit boring, just like you know all the overdub stuff. But so they do the basic tracks either at the studio in Quebec, which had an A-range, or they'd go to Rockfield in Wales, which had an A-range, because it was owned by a former Trident, an early 70s Trident guy, Ted Sharp. And then they'd bring it to Trident in Soho, and we would do all the overdubs, all the vocals, all the solos, Getty doing his Taurus pedals, you know. Right. And, and then we would mix. So one of the first mixes that I ever had my fingers on was Spirit Radio. Wow. And nobody really? knows yeah. that song. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whatever happened to that band? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, wow, but, that's but, amazing, but, Adam. For, yeah. Fortunately, my fingers on Ten Faders didn't have the same influence as they did on Kiss's career. But <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you were a little bit further in your career at that point, yeah. right? So it was already a, 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 heading a, in the right direction. Exactly. Right? <laughs> I, I'd, I'd learned some of that magic touch a little bit more. But like mixing the tracks on permanent waves, we would mix the songs in sections and maybe there'd be four of us shoulder to shoulder, squashed up, 10 faders each, playing the faders. And I'd never really understood what is mixing about. My experience of recording and I understood it and everyone's adding all the parts and adding the ideas and getting, making the arrangement work and getting the dynamics going and adding the stuff. And so I'd never really appreciated the creative aspect, the performance aspect of mixing. Sure. And it, and again, this is something I bring in to, you know, working in Pro Tools. You can still perform your mixes, even if it's one fader at a time. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what we did. Shoulder to shoulder, four of us, 10 faders each, Spirit Radio. We'd spend hours just on the intro section before it drops into, you know, with all the fancy guitar stuff. And then it drops into the rhythm part, which is the second part of the intro before verse one. But we would spend hours, just four of us, vibing the faders, trying different effects, different sends, learning how much gain to give on button three, but then get button three up and quickly get it to two on the same track. But your gain had to be uh, number two there, but you and you were going to max it up to maybe 3.7 
And nothing could ever be written down because that meant that you weren't really good Paying at what attention. you were doing. Right. Yeah. yeah. So all of this had to be learned. And also in conjunction with what the, for me, with what the other three were doing, and the other three only happened to be Terry Brown, Getty, and Alex. So there was, <laughs> you know, not, nothing serious about that situation. Right. Either. Although the most lovely blokes ever. And every, every night, Alex and I would jump up to the kitchen and we'd cook a meal because we, on the sessions, we'd got fed up with um, takeout foods. So we, Alex and I would run up to the kitchen and we'd trade recipes and make food together for everyone. Which, nice. Which was nice, always nice. fun. So, so what was uh, what was the favorite dish that you got to cook? For oh, man, the, the, best, the best thing I learned from Alex was to make shepherd's pie and to have whatever you Wait, are you are you having a Canadian man teaching you how to make shepherd's yeah, that pie? Kind of state. What? I, I know. I know, but but we all and we all had that Eastern European immigrant background anyway, so it was all new territory. Shepherd's pie would at that time we were using meat. I don't eat meat now, but whatever your meat source is, and then there'd be a layer of cheese mm. completely. Okay. Then there would be eggs. Mm. And then and then the mashed potato. Wow. And, I don't think and, I've ever had it with eggs. Nor had I. Boom. Amazing. If yeah. Anyway, that's apart from learning how to mix on permanent waves, I also learned, <laughs> learned how to, to do shepherd's Alex. pie with eggs from Alex. It's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. I know. Yeah. 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 And they, uh, at the end of the album they bought me um a Swedish chef little doll. Oh nice. <laughs> yeah. From from um from the Muppets. Right. That was it. And and Mike Mike Stone, his second wife was Norwegian, a Norwegian model. And because I'd lived in Sweden and I'd learned Swedish before coming back, Mike, whenever his wife called, he would just ask me to talk to her. And he would want me to speak in Swedish because he just thought it was such a funny language. He didn't actually care too much to talk to his wife. He just wanted to laugh <laughs> at how funny <laughs> Swedish, Swedish sounded in a very loving way. He was a sure. beautiful beautiful person really lovely person wow but yeah that was part of my very early beginnings trident was very much you know the the bastion of rock it really was for english right. rock and thin it had been thin lizzy and t-rex and so many other bands the stones had been there as well and then it went into trident went into the disco period after that after all the big so i got the musicianship then was just phenomenal Every week we were recording at least two string sections a week, which is why I really learned to understand about arrangements. And they were flying in horn players from New York and flew in the Brecker brothers, Michael oh. Brecker. Oh, wow. So you nice. get to work with them now. Yeah, on, on a Tina Turner album. And of course, Tina Turner would walk in the room and everyone would be gobsmacked. She was like royalty, one of the most, right. grac one of the most gracious people ever. And just such a... She wasn't even, she hadn't even blown up yet in her solo career. This right. was an interim disco record she made, not necessarily the high point of her. She hadn't done the Private Dancer album and What's Love mm. Got To Do With It yet. Right. But still, she just had such a aura about her. Just phenomenal. But they flew the Brecker's brothers in. And now I was putting a microphone up for Michael Brecker, who had inspired me to want to be in a band. And as time went on, I ended up working with him four times and got to know him. And that was just such a major, major, major point for me. I bet. That's yeah. fantastic. Kind of like to get to work moment. With, yeah, yeah. To get to work with one of your heroes that sort of kicked it off. That had to be 
amazing yeah. experience. Yeah. So I have a question that I like to, just as a sidestep here because you keep mentioning Trident, obviously Trident Studio, mm. and you know as we tend to do today, I think we sometimes conflate the gear and the software and all this kind of stuff with good products. Like you keep hinting at, there were, there's a certain reason why it was air quote better in those mm. days, right? Have you tried the, or are you using the Trident Channel Strip plugin? Absolutely, the soft yeah. one. Right. Um, Swedish company from yeah. Sherping, I think. Mm -hmm. It's stunning. Yeah. It is stunning. I do some kind of like feedback with the, the Trident guys who own Trident now and they make the 80. Yeah, they do a 60, 70 and 80. I've got some Trident 80B EQs right behind me mm -hmm. uh, in my room, but the Softube plugin is just phenomenal. It really mm. is. And when Plugin Alliance were doing the SSL channel, Dirk, who is Brainworks, right. Plugin yeah. Alliance, Dirk Ulrich, I remember he was doing a demonstration and I sat down with him at an SSL 4000 console because uh, jumping ahead in 1983, Trident, Trident had closed, they reopened, they bought a second studio which had been 10cc's mastering room and put an SSL in. And I was one of the first SSL guys in the UK and we were working on, it was actually a 6000 series, but it was exactly the same as the 4000E. It just had a different three bus button on it, Okay. basically. When Dirk was modeling the SSL 4000E, I sat down with him for a little bit at a 4000E and he had the plugin going direct to the monitors and we had the same signal, it was a, a guitar going through the console, through the real SSL analog and going through the plugin. And we weren't listening for, we weren't doing any spectrum analyzer stuff. They'd already done that. Right. We were just listening to how it sounded when you actually increased like 3K you know, right. and any harmonic kind of stuff that was happening. And that's what I love about the artistry of Plugin Alliance. It's also musical. I've got all of their channel strips, the Neve 88R, the vintage Neve 80, the Focusrite. I like the Focusrite, you know, by the way. It, it's amazing. And I've got some of the blue ISAs in my room, mic pre's, which I love the Focusrite ISA mic pre's. But, you know, when I'm tracking drums, uh, one of the first things I'm going to decide or tracking any record is what is the sound that I want for the drums as well as the sound of the room. So I'm either going to go for a vintage seventies sounding room, you know, like studio, studio two or three at East West and studio three at East West in the beach boys room has part of the original Trident from Soho London hmm. in that room now. So that's always kind of pretty so wild. It's like coming me. home. <laughs> it's, it's wild. Yeah. I always get a bit, Misty either. So much a, a part of capturing the sound of any record and getting the feel and the character that you want comes down to, well, which studio, what's the room sound like, which console am I going to use, which microphones I'm going to use, which kit will I use, who's the drum, you know, all these different factors. But the console is, sometimes I'll go to a room just to, because they've got a vintage API, you okay. know, and I really want to track my drums on an API. Sure. But if I'm doing strings, I might want to track the strings on an Eve 88R, which is always perfect for an orchestra. So working in the box, if I'm working on a session that was either 
handed to me or I didn't get to record it where I would have wanted to, I can put the channel strips for the API console on my drums. On my strings, I can put the Neve ADAR. On anything else, I can put my Trident A range or my ADB, or I can do whatever. And the most important thing is that all these things, especially from these good companies, they have so crafted the sound and they're musical people who are doing it in the first place and really care about what they're doing. And the most important thing is to educate your ears so that you actually know which colors to choose. Right. You know? And that's where I think the, the vintage stuff, it's so important for music makers to educate themselves, watch videos, watch YouTube clips, you know, read articles, read Jeff Emmerich's book or Ken Scott's book. Or that there's another book. I, I did a, a panel with Jeff Emmerich a few years back. At, I think it was at AAS. And there's a great book called The Great British Recording Studios. And it actually goes through all the equipment that each one had. There's there's all these, all the information is out there. You know, yeah. uh, for any music maker today, all they have to do is have the will to actually want to learn. Right. You know. Key phrase there, the will. Yeah. yeah. It, it, As I'm, your career is already proving is like you had the will. I mean, you started all, out always. constructing yeah. and making food yeah. and working your way up. Uh, real quick, before we jump to whatever is next in your head, you mentioned something about getting a side-by-side -side with the SSL, but you didn't mm. actually say whether there was a big difference or not in the plug-in no, to the, the console. No, I mean, I mean, Dirk's just phenomenal, really. I mean, he's a mad heavy metal guitarist anyway. So... <laughs> He, he was really like wanting to dial into those overtones that happen when you drive a channel on a console mm -hmm. and, you know, wanted to perfect the sound beyond just a spectrum, you know, a, a spectrum analyzer of frequencies sure. to see that he wanted to hear the sound, which is so. And also the thing is, is that when I first started, so Trident closed at the end of 1981, I moved to New York for a while. Trident reopened towards the end of 83, but the lineage had been broken. The T-Boy system had been broken. So I was asked to come back as chief engineer and put a new team together, also head up the new room, which was the SSL room uh, in South London, but also put a new team of people together because I knew the old one and I'd come through the old system. And the team that I helped put together, I can't claim all credit for it, but it was with Flood, Alan Mulder, Spike Stant, Al Clay, who who has a house full of Oscars for all the work that he does, he's done with Hans Zimmer now. Hans mm -hmm. Zimmer was our go-to keyboard player. Synth, wow. Synth, <laughs> synth, Imagine synth, that. Synth programmer, because only three guys could synchronize. This is before sync machines. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and you couldn't sync a drum machine with an arpeggiator. You know, mm, you yeah. could jam sync it and you could get about 30, 40 seconds that it would kind of be in time. So if we put a Lindrum or an 808 and recorded that onto tape, we'd then have to like jam sync the arpeggiator and we have to wait for it to sync up. Then we'd jump into record, grab 30 seconds. Then everyone, five people would have a discussion of how far back it started to drift. Then <laughs> we'd back up, <laughs> and play we it along. And then the, the cut yeah. in point. <laughs> and, then, and then punching again to record, hopefully getting it clean on the front of the note on the 16th arpeggiator thing. Oh my God. And... There was only three guys, which was Thomas Dolby, Billy Curry, who was in Ultravox, and Hans Zimmer. They were the only three guys who knew how to kind of like jam sync and do that stuff. Wow. wow. And then 
and then you know time code came out sure and you yeah. could sync multi-tracks together and you could sync drum machines with arpeggiators and stuff the you infamous yeah. empty beeps <laughs> but what, yeah. what about what about a team though i mean yeah, all of those people. That, that's crazy. And I know you've told me one time, and I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but can you uh, tell our listeners here how Flood got his nickname? <laughs> yeah. Flood had been at a different studio, uh, Marcus Studios, which oddly enough was owned by Marcus Osterdahl, a Swedish mm. guy in London. Mm. Lovely guy. And Flood had been a tea boy there. And was constantly, constantly, constantly bringing teas, more than people could even drink, bringing tray after tray of teas and coffees. <laughs> and seriously, I think, as my story, as my recollection goes, there had been another tea boy at the same time called Drought, who, <laughs> <laughs> who, 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 who didn't get to do seven U2 albums. Right. You know, or PJ Harvey or Nick Cave or The Killers with Alan Mulder or right. whoever. Flood, just phenomenally talented that, person. That, that's, yeah, I, I just love that. that that's yeah. such a good boy. So, so you yeah. know, if you get the chance to, to be a tea boy, make sure people have tea, right? Yeah, and <laughs> I, I, I was really good at, like, clearing up the room after I'd brought food to the room because I couldn't afford to buy food. So I'd eat the leftovers and hopefully I'd get some of it while it was still warm. So I was like a great tea boy because I was like, the minute food was done, I'd like clear it out the room and all the plates and everything was gone and in, I'd be in the elevator like, right. try, trying to eat pizza around the, the bite marks that had been left. You know? Right. Brutal. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So um, I want to ask a question about Richard Marks. What era did you work with him in? At his peak, when he had like back-to-back number ones. Mm-hmm. And I worked on a song with him, Endless Summer Nights. And he'd done the song Satisfied and Right Here Waiting For You. They were all like mega, mega US worldwide number ones. Was that Uh, around the time that CJ was working with him as well? I guess so. But what I was asked to do was to to remix Endless Summer Nights for the UK and Europe. Okay. And I loved the song, loved his voice, phenomenal songwriter, amazing songwriter. A real artist understanding the development of a song and picking up into the pre-chorus, into the chorus, and then, you know, the most beautiful bridges that go into a change and step away from the main part of the song and then come back maybe with a lift as that one into a solo or a lift going back into a pre-chorus and then choruses out. But he really, an amazing songwriter. And Endless Summer Nights had, had just come out and it was... At that moment, it was number one or was top three in the States. I think it was number one. And I was asked to do a remix for Europe. And I said, I need to add additional stuff. I was 20 nothing, you know. <laughs> and, and my manager at the time said, um, the folks, she'd called me, you know, said, oh, you ought to do a remix on a Richard Marks track. And I said, yeah, I haven't sent it over. I listened to it and said, called back and said, yeah, I want to, you know, record a lot more stuff. And the phone kind of went quiet and it was like, Adam, you are aware that this is a number one at the moment in America. And <laughs> being slightly more brash, my twin is like, yeah, I know, but I think it needs stuff. The- I have some demands. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, I, I reworked the song, added a lot of stuff. And the comment came back from Richard that he actually preferred 
version, which was very nice to hear. Oh, but, very nice. Yeah. yeah. I just expanded on it more. I thought that the song was really, really cool and lovely, but I just felt it was kind of like a little bit flat in its dynamics uh, and just added a bit more contrast to the arrangement. Well, it's nice that you listened and allowed that to happen. Yeah. So, Adam, you mentioned there one thing I wanted to ask a question or at least just comment on when you were talking about Richard Marks and his development of the song and things. It strikes me that that whole thing sort of transposing up either semitone or a whole tone or, or even a minor third or something at the end of the last course, I don't hear that a lot anymore. Yeah, I know. I'm, I mean, it, a lot of those amazing skills i mean when you listen to like early pop 60s whether it's beatles or motown or whatever nearly always the chorus would speed up the, yeah the, cor the chorus would be two or three bpm you mm -hmm. know faster <laughs> with ringo that was probably unintentional <laughs> but, <laughs> but but then he'd then he'd go into a fill and try and figure out where he should be during the fill because you can hear that as well which is what's so unique and beautiful about his playing. But that was like the skills where the technology hadn't taken over, you know. Yeah. And that's something that, again, you know, we mentioned, like, I teach, I share this knowledge because I think it's just so important. And it seems that modern music makers would love to know these things if they knew what it was they're meant to know. Sure. You know? Right, yeah. So, so I feel that very much in, like, the whole bigger scope of the production of music right. showing these things i mean pop music is in a very different stage at the moment anyway you know songs sure. are a little bit more formatted but those beautiful skills of key changes on on the outro you know stepping a song up sometimes it was a bit corny but you can still do it in a classy way and these changes sometimes speed the chorus up a touch do it in the computer you can still do it you can map yeah. You know, you can have like a one bar slight change, you know, right? Where, where you just slight, yeah. yeah, where you just slightly increment the tempo going up to drop into the chorus. So it's not a jump. You know, if people are dancing, then they're not going to fall over. Right. <laughs> but, but it is an interesting thing. I mean, because all of those, I mean, even if we think about pop structure formatting, right? And we think, oh, it's cliche. Yeah, but it's it's cliche for a reason. It's because it works, mm. right? And, you know, most people that listen to music aren't going to analyze it in such a way anyway. They just know mm. that they like the way it sounds and how it makes them feel, right? Again, I, I feel like such an old fart here sometimes when I analyze things and I comment on these things. But but there's there's a few things that, that come to mind that I just feel like I need to get off my chest. <laughs> so the first thing, well, I'll take a step back when it comes to the gear. And you mentioned that how you can use different console emulations to provide a certain sound on the tracks that you're recording. And a big part of that is, of course, like you said, you have to know what that is imparting. But then I think there's also a conflation of sorts here where we have all of these tools available and we assume that just because we have a trident channel strip in our session that it's going to make it better well no you have to know <laughs> what it does right and oh you know what this song would only be better if i had an ssl 9000j 
emulation, mm. right? But Followed it, it by an everything. API 2500 compressor yeah. or something of that nature. Obviously, yeah. right. But but it all comes down to the song again, right? And the emotion. And also, yeah. like even if you don't have five different console emulations, mm. use the gear that you have to its fullest. And then when you start hearing those things where things might be lacking, that's when you go out and, and you try to get something else. But So I think that it's sort of like a fine line there between clever and stupid, isn't it? No, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but, but between, you know, knowing how to fully utilize the gear and also knowing what to listen for and, and think yeah. that it's just, oh, I have to have all of this kind of stuff. Yeah, so, absolutely. It is one of those things, but when somebody, like in your position, when you know what they impart, you can get the fullest benefit of, of kind of all the flexibility that comes with it. And th th there's something I would like to, in the late 80s and around that Richard Marks kind of era, so many records were being done on SSL consoles. Every channel had a compressor. Every channel had a gate. It was a really tight, punchy sound. Right. And the technology often determines stars of music as well. Sure. Just yeah, like yeah, yeah. Just, mm -hmm. just like synchronization enabled New Order and Depeche Mode, you know. Right drum machine and arpeggiators, suddenly people could create new genres of music. One of the big factors of why 80s hip hop is just so great and in your face and crunchy was because the samplers being used were 12-bit samplers. So right. you were getting a very gritty version of the sound that you'd sampled back, and that became part of the character of the music. And technology can have a role sometimes where it leads the way. Just the fact that with the AMS sampler, you could sample 1.2 seconds and now you could replace a kick drum. Boom, right. mind blowing. Right. But still, if the kick drum is all over the place and the song is shit and the playing shit, it doesn't matter how great your sample is that you replace the kick drum with. Right. You, know? you so, can't polish the turd is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's one of my favorite sayings and actually you can and you get a shiny turd. Sure, but it's still shit. <laughs> this know? is true, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. You can throw loads of money, you know, and keep lacquering it, but it's always going to be a turd, you know. Right. Actually, Mythbusters did do that, didn't they? Oh, no. <laughs> yes, really? they did. Oh, my gosh. I, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the point being is, is like back to basics. I love Wes Anderson films. They always blow my mind visually and the visuals just emotionally. And when he's starting a film, he always determines what the color palette is going to be for the film. He chooses the colors that will make the look of the film feel how he wants it to connect. Mm -hmm. yeah. that's, the that's the same with sound. I put so much work on any record into visualizing the end result, sometimes storyboarding a video for the song. Did that completely with my first big hit, which was The Blow Monkeys, a song called Dig In Your Scene in... 85, 86, that's what brought me first time to LA. With Roxette, I think my biggest contribution, to be honest, I did produce some of the songs on the album, but when I was brought into that, they'd already started the record. This was the first album, Look Sharp. They'd started it, they had a collection of songs, but Pear had been in the glam rock band, Yilin Tida, I think they yeah. the name, and Marie was the most beautiful, phenomenal, Swedish, Joni Mitchell kind of singer-songwriter, really beautiful lyrics. It was two individuals coming together, but there wasn't a clear vision. There was like his songs and her songs. And I think my biggest contribution was 
just in visualizing how does Roxette look? And our first pre-production meeting in Stockholm, first of all, we'd met in London, then I went to Stockholm. The first pre-production meeting, which was a four-hour meeting, which was, was meant to be about starting the record and putting stuff together, I said to them, imagine you're in New York, the single's out, it's on MTV, you're staying at the Mayflower on the Upper West Side, which used to be like one of the music, you know, if you didn't want to get stabbed at the Chelsea, you mm -hmm. go up to the Mayflower. And I said, you walk in your room, you put TV on MTV, this song is on MTV, tell me what you're seeing. And we spent four hours talking about the body language, what they were wearing, the yin and the yang, the push and pull between the two of them, which became so much a part of the package with Roxette was people yep. trying to figure out what's going on with these two, you know? Right. Yeah. And once we had set the parameters for visualizing what the band was about, then we could choose the sounds of the instruments and choose the instruments and create the parts that would fit with the vision. And I really think my biggest contribution was in establishing the vision of how Roxette would look and act together. Well, it definitely that's very worked. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, that's and, fantastic. And, and, and then when uh, She's Got the Look was number one in 17 countries in the same week, we were back in London and we went to a Tex-Mex bar and we serve a waitress who had the bandoleras with the shotguns and the bottles of tequila and the holsters. We, tr <laughs> we tried to do a shot for every territory that we had a number one. Oh, um, Jesus. Uh, oh, which, yeah. Apparently we didn't. Um, <laughs> we, we, Per and I don't know how far we got, but apparently Marie was last person standing. Blessing. Wow! Yay! <laughs> Swedish alcohol consumption. That's Here it. Yeah. But yeah. So the fundamentals. Back to you of the fundamentals of writing a song and getting to grips with the essence of it. All the technology, all the bells and whistles. You can do anything. I can sit here and I could have the equivalent of six of the most classic consoles in my mix, you know, mm. with the most amazing microphones or mic simulators, which I have through the Slate VMS system. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> incredible. And I've got good warm audio mics as well. But all of it comes down to having a good idea. And something I really learned. Like in the late 80s into the 90s, sound got so precise and so so cleaned up that nearly all the character got taken out because mm. everything was suddenly so precise. FM radio had blown up. Now people were broadcasting music in stereo. Mm -hmm. A lot of radio stations would add their extra compression to make it punch even more. Sometimes they'd add top end to show how shiny their sound was because that hadn't been done before mm, sure. on radio. Sometimes they'd add a bit of reverb to get it even shinier. How and did that affect things like the uh, the Cure stuff that you worked on? It was wild because the Cure and the Blow Monkeys were the last two records that I did on the Trident A range at Trident before it was sold to, to Cherokee Studios in LA. I did them almost back to back, two of the biggest records or two of the most important records that I had. The Cure was the song close to me. And specifically on that song, Dave Allen, genius, had produced all of their records. On that one, he asked me to engineer with him because he wanted a specific sound. The band were eight hours late because they were so drunk, it took eight hours to get all of them into one car <laughs> oh, and, no. and, and actually get them to the studio. I nearly walked out 
several times during the eight hour wait. And, you know, at some stage during that wait, I said to Dave, look, are you sure you need me here? You know, and he said, yeah, yeah, mate, I got to get this really specific sound that's happening. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, it's got a, the video is going to be in a wardrobe and it and it's all claustrophobic and the wardrobe's going to go over a cliff and there's water going to be coming in and it's got to sound like they're in this wardrobe like that so what i did was i got four big gobos the ones that don't have any plexiglass see-through in it just solid material fabric and i made a box that was the size of mm. a wardrobe and when mm. robert smith arrived i put him in the box i think i was used the 87 or something for a very tight warm sound and it was dead all around him the sound was dead so because i had a visual reference of what the video would be for that song i could then craft the sound sure. to suit the character to suit the character of the song and the purpose of the song and i think nearly always songs where i've been involved that were big hits is because we had the opportunity and the common thread between everyone to really visualize the end result and then set about making the choices that would arrive at that goal. That's right. awesome. the vision that we had. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, because that's, you know, you're taking that to a whole different scale now, but, you know, we often talk about visualizing a mix when you get tracks from somebody mm. at first listen to kind of think about, okay, well, where do you hear this going if you don't get mm. super clear directives from an artist or something? Right? Mm -hmm. but, but that, it, thinking from a, a, a visual perspective is mm. even more impactful, I think. So that that's uh, that's pretty cool. I, and, I have and, a question. Do you know an artist by the name of Mark Luna? No. Okay, familiar, then but... it's probably not somebody that you've worked with, but somebody that maybe you worked with with the whole visualization thing worked with him and it rubbed off on him because that's where I learned a lot of that visualization oh, stuff wow. in okay. terms of like, where are we taking this before we even wrote a note together? Mm. He was already like, where do we envision this going? And it was very interesting to do that because now I tend to do that too. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, amaz it's amazing just, and why not put that work into it? Yeah. You know, yeah. if you want to create something that's convincing. And I only learned by making my own music and I'd finish it. It's like in my really, I was nearly signed with my brother. We were kind of like a, a UK Hall & Oates, Blue-Eyed Soul kind of thing before Hall & Oates got into their pop thing, which was also with Neil Kernan from Trident. The whole kind of like having a sense of what is the end goal and then how do I get there was because I was making my own music and I'd record a song and it was a song. It had instruments, it had notes, there were parts being played, there was an intro, there was verses, there was a chorus, whatever. And then, you know, the song would finish after three minutes, 40 or whatever. And I think, but that isn't what I intended. It doesn't sound how I intended. Yeah, it constitutes a song, but it's not what I had in mind. So that really set me off on this deeper, deeper journey into understanding how sound feels. Sure. And one of my major moments in that was like after the big rock era of the late 70s, then going into the disco era of pristine music and the most phenomenal musicianship, then the pushback against disco and also Margaret Thatcher was punk, you know, right. yeah. and and suddenly I was working with Cotney Rejects, Angelica Upstarts, various versions of Bow Wow Wow and the Pistols, Sex Pistols, then in different combinations, and then 
almost 35 years later working with the pistols again which was wild um <laughs> i remember with one of the punk bands and they came in and i can't even remember half the records that we did because they'd come in with and they'd have their band name but then by the time the record was finished the band name would have changed and now they're on top of the pops on tv and i'd be looking <laughs> and i'd be looking at that i'd be looking at the, the band on top of the pops thinking that sounds familiar and that bloke <laughs> he looks familiar too but they were but they were called something else you know right. six weeks six weeks earlier but i was at one of the punk bands and the drummer came in and the the head on the floor tom was split completely split and flapping and bob henry who'd been the drummer with the kinks had a drum store around the corner from trident and i i it was like 30 second 20 second to get there and i said to the drummer oh mate look i'm just gonna pop out and get another you know head for your floor tom you know and then we can start recording and he said i've been playing with that fucking tom for six fucking months it sounds fucking brilliant just put a fucking mic on it and fuck off <laughs> and now that's like, an artist that knows what he wants and it's like yeah i can do that as well <laughs> right proper <laughs> oh, punk rock yeah i think i'll take option b yeah. yeah um and it sounded really bizarre but i realized and i learned pretty early on that what constitutes a good sound isn't a pristine sound it's the sound that feels right for the genre and mm -hmm. that tom actually was perfect for that band you know right. um so that really shaped my awareness as well and then further along my journey i'd worked with nico in the mid 80s from velvet underground in london and then years years later after moving to la which i said i've been here 25 years permanently i've worked on five different projects with john kale uh, okay. from velvet underground which has just been phenomenal just a amazing amazing person just so frighteningly intelligent um <laughs> and one project i did with was a film score that he'd recorded and they wanted me to mix it in surround this is going back a few years mm -hmm. uh, uh and yeah. i just set up a surround system in at first it was i had a studio in la called the boat which had george martin's original 1969 neve eighty twenty eight that Rupert Neve had designed for George Martin. It was in Studio 3 uh, Air, which is where the Pistols had recorded their albums. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, got, I got to see that studio with you, actually. Mm. That, that, was, that was fantastic. And I remember the gear that was in there and how it just oh, made my pants fit funny. You know? Did you yeah. touch the piano? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did not but I did touch the Neve, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, just as good. Right. Um, yeah, we had 23 outboard compressors, three LA-2As. Each one sounded different. I knew the top one was a bit brighter. The middle one was a bit boxy. The third LA-2A was all bottom end and warmth and had no top end. So again, hmm. even learning your outboard gear is like yeah. learning your plugins and choosing which one works, which is how I learned from Mike Stone, who had done the first five Queen albums. When he was saying to me, oh, on the acoustics, can you put an LA-2A? Uh, on the bass i want in 1176 and on those really heavy saturated guitars can you put an la3 on them you know put the input gain to kind of like 11 o'clock put it on ratio you know four to one i didn't know i didn't know right. anything and i'd be moving these things but i'd start to think okay he wanted la2a on acoustics why let me try and discover how that sounds so mm -hmm. i put an la2a on the bass and see what he did 
compared to what it did to an acoustic and started to, tr to train my ear mm -hmm. into how just the circuitry of these boxes, I'm not talking about hitting any compression or anything, but just the circuitry or the tubes in these vintage boxes of outboard, how they change the sound. And that exact same exercise is what people need to do with their plugins, yeah. uh, especially the plugins that are emulated on wheel gear. And sometimes, yeah, right. I'll, sometimes I'll come across a plugin and I think, oh my God, that sounds so digital. It's horrible. I'm never gonna use that. And then next thing I'll get a track in with a, a synth that wanted to be like 80s and sound digital. And I think, <laughs> oh my God, that plugin that I swore I would never use will be perfect. Because just the plugin yeah. alone is going to filter these frequencies and make it sound more shiny just in itself before I even start to play with any buttons. So uh -huh. that's been such an important part of the journey of understanding sound and trying to figure it out. Every at Trident, everyone just made it up as they were going along. And that's what I'm still doing, you know. That's, uh, that's fantastic. So m maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about you know what you're doing now when you're lecturing mm. at like Herb Alpert School, mm. and that's at, at UCLA, yeah. Yeah, uh, no, it, it it it's fantastic, and, and I'm not necessarily saying this is how you do things. You know, of course, um, I'm doing a course on the art of music production, which is understanding song structure, understanding how to how to motivate performance, how to deal with personalities, how to put an arrangement together how to use different time changes, maybe to how to put a six, eight bar in a pop song for a two bar turnaround and then come back to four, four. And, you know, for the chorus or just at the end of like the pre-chorus or at the end of the bridge before it drops to the chorus or whatever, just having a, a suspended extra two beats so that you've got an extra half bar or put an extra bar and maybe add the seventh and just step up a little bit and then the drop. Right. You just made um, my day right there because <laughs> yeah. I have been doing that and I've been trying to get other people that I co-write with to do stuff like this. And a lot of the times I literally have to drag them kicking and screaming into mm. doing it. And then once they get used to it, they're like, oh, that is just mm. like, it's, it, it's a way to set yourself apart from everything yeah. that's currently going on. That's just strictly for. Yeah. And not every song needs every no. single trick. And, and that's the thing, but when you've got those, to use my cliche again, but when you've got those colors in your palette, you can choose the shades in between and apply what works and trial and error. Of, you're saying like often, you know, you've got to drag people kicking and screaming. I realize that in producing, one of the biggest things is like creating this real trust and bond, mm, which yeah. you can only do by example. Yep. I've got lots of cliches as my students will remind me, but I learned often like working one-to-one -one with an artist and knowing where the song should go, knowing what the next stage would be, knowing what the next idea would be. But if I didn't take the artist on the journey and show them why I thought yeah. that was the next idea, they wouldn't understand. Then they'd start to become disconnected from their song. Then a rift starts to happen in the working relationship. Then there's less trust. You'll start to get some pushback just because Sometimes you just needed to get on with it and get it done yeah, within yep. the time frame and budget. But I learned that sometimes with an artist, you've got to take them by the hand and walk them all the way around the block just to go next door. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and when I say kicking and screaming, I mean, mm. I have to give multiple ex oh, yeah. examples of like how this actually ends up working and, yeah. and benefits the song. 
Exactly. And when I'm working with an artist and I've got a strong vision, I don't care how whose idea it is that gets there. I see my role as being the catalyst, as being the mirror image, as being a soundboard to bounce their ideas back at them, hopefully to get to the next version of the idea. And then normally you know when it's working better than it did before. And then you try the next thing and maybe that's too much. So you dial it back one step mm-hmm. and that trial and error. But that's the real beauty of the art of music production is understanding people, motivating people, sometimes having to come down and, and push if you have to. But really the the craft of it is something. And again, in that mid eighties period is when I actually, when I started to understand how to do it. Cause I was engineering and I thought, oh my God, I'm the engineer. There's people standing around. I better get doing something with these buttons, you know, <laughs> and, and, and didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I was now an engineer. And then once I'd got on top of all of that and felt that my mixing was okay as well, which was maybe six, seven years in around 1985, that's when I actually fell in, in love with sound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and started to want to discover how can I actually create feelings just through the sound of the notes, not just the notes that are played, but the sound of them. And often it's things that we do anyway. Jody, you've got a load of guitars. You're going to automatically have an idea for a song in a certain vibe, certain mood, and you're going to pick, go to the guitar. And Chris, I know you're phenomenal guitarist so. as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just an automatic thing. And what you're doing is thinking, okay, is this a semi-hollow? Is this a thin body? Is this a strat or a telly or, you know, whatever? Is this a a big jumbo acoustic or is it a Martin? And then again, am I using light gauge or heavy gauge? And am I using a pick or what kind of pick? Is it a heavy? All these different things. Affect the uh, way uh, the notes come out. Yeah. And they're all parts of the element of capturing the sound of the emotion of those notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. the, note, the notes being a part of the song that supports the story that you're maybe trying to tell. And that journey is what's kept me fascinated and that journey of sound and discovery of sound. And just as a quick thing, what it's led me to, I started getting into being asked to mix film stuff and TV stuff. Mm-hmm. My mixing is very cinematic and it's very dimensional from all this visualizing. So then I was being asked to mix some film stuff and the first feature movie I did was a Robert De Niro film with Susan Sarandon, Diane Keaton, Robin Williams, Amanda, you know, nothing like starting off the deep Yeah, so so you're starting (laughs) off at the bottom rung there working yourself up, right? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) mixing like 33 cues of music with orchestration. Wow. Um, More and more, then I I mixed the theme for the TV show The Americans, some stuff for True Blood various other like TV theme stuff. And then people started reaching out to me saying, you know, supervisors were saying, hey, we know you, you're also working with lots of cool bands, you know, or we're looking for a song like this, or we want some music like that. Is there anyone in your circle that knows? At the same time, for at least the last 20 years, every artist I've worked with has said to me, how can I get my music to music supervisors? Yeah. You know, that's where there's some money. How can I get to music supervisors and so on? And I realized that there was no one from the music side of like from our world who was actually representing artists and musicians and songwriters and placing their existing songs in TV shows and films and so on. So realizing that no one was really standing in the middle of this, you know, supervisors coming to you from one side, artists coming to you from the other, but the two sides not meeting. That's where I created my 
company Accidental, Accidental Entertainment, and Accidental Studios in, in my house here in Silver Lake. And we've now got, we represent about 120 artists. That's um, great. That's good stuff. And it, which is amazing. We're, we're placing music every, every week. We're about to go into a major expansion, about to double up the company as well, and doing publishing and also advising and creating NFTs for artists as another means of revenue and just really stepping into this whole new world of revenues, which I remember the day when a band would be approached for their music for a commercial. They'd Turn say, yeah, <laughs> half, a, half a million pounds, tell them to F off. We're, we're not selling out, you know. Right. It, it, yeah, Gone are those I think days. that's... Yeah, mm. I think that changed with uh, the Stones, right? When yeah. I think it was Windows ninety five, right? And they said, "Well, just tell Bill Gates we want a million dollars, and he'll turn mm. it down." And he goes, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> and, and that was it, right? Yeah. Yes. So well, uh, one million dollars. Yeah, right. million dollars, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, we could probably keep talking to you for another hour or two yeah. or three here, but uh, I think we will probably try to let you go here. We still need to ask three questions. Yet. Yes, exactly. So we have three questions that we Talk like to ask us. people. No, there's nothing. First off, is what's the best tea? In LA. No, that, that's not that's not one of the questions. The, the first question that, that we like to ask everybody: What's your favorite piece of gear that you can't live without? My barefoot speakers. Yeah, yeah. I've got the MM forty fives. Life life changing. So are they more um, for tracking or mixing or mastering? Um, all of it. All of it. The, wow. Yeah, the most complete all round speakers. I've endorsed by barefoot, but because I love them. Because um, you like him, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, otherwise I couldn't use speakers that didn't just, they changed everything. Yeah. Amazing. Well, fantastic. Joe, do you want to do the next one? What's the, well, I feel like we've already gotten this, but the biggest we lesson that yeah. you have learned in your career? To listen. Okay. To listen to what people are saying. At the beginning, through my own inexperience and nervousness, I'd you know, jump into meetings or jump into situations, really feeling that I've got to be saying stuff and really got to be showing. And then once I like started to achieve some things, I started to mellow out a bit and think, you know what, let me hear what other people are saying. And then I can work out what information I'm getting and work out how we direct this. And also to take breaks. That's the biggest, one of the biggest thing is to constantly take breaks, step away, like every 40 minutes, take a break. Clear my ears. Um, almost unlike this podcast because it's going so yeah. long. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the last one, advice that you universally give to people. I mean, I'm sure you have people coming up and asking for advice mm. all the time. So what's the big one? Biggest thing is to... Collect be, plugins, even if you don't know how to use yeah, them, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or just collect consoles. Or, right. Yeah. You know. If you got that um, budget, yeah. Yeah. I think to make music because you enjoy it is one of the most important thing. It's music. It's meant to be enjoyed. You know, yeah. if you're not able to sustain yourself with music, still make music, find something else that you can sustain you so that you can enjoy your music and sure. not be miserable by having to provide for yourself and whoever. Biggest advice, always learn, always learn, always feed yourself, feed your brain. And research, find out how things are done. With every new piece of technology that comes out, I think that's it. Game over. I'm done. I'm washed up. 
my career. I'm never going to understand this bit. <laughs> right. Is that how you and, felt about the split EQ from Eventide? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Every time I th- after a sulk, I'll come back and think, okay, I've figured out other stuff. This can't be that tricky. And to always embrace the challenges. And, to, keep, and to, to reinvent and to keep my eye on the prize. There it is. Excellent. Excellent advice right there. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Adam. This has been an absolute pleasure. Yes, and, I uh, agree. Yeah, I mean, I w- would love to have you back at some point if you'd like. But uh, yep. it, again, it's been great to reconnect. And thank you so much for doing this, Adam. Really, really uh, appreciate it. P- pleasure. It's so great to reconnect and chat with you both. And had a great time. This is thank great. you as well, Adam. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, we want to thank Adam Mosley once again for joining us on Inside the Recording Studio. And right now it's time for Friday Finds. Chris, what have you got for us today? It was a major breakthrough this week, I think, in technology Uh-oh. world because iLock has finally gone mm. Apple Silicon native. So my projection is that Ooh, now a yay. lot of it. Right? I am not running an Apple Silicon machine, but those who are will undoubtedly do a dance of joy because this means that a lot of the plugins are, if they're not already, they will soon be available to run natively on the M1 chips and all that family. So I think that has to be first my, my Friday find. What about you? What do you got? I've got another, well, essentially what it is is, and I just kind of brushed it there when he mentioned about learning technology and suddenly feeling depressed about it, so to speak. Yeah. The split EQ from Eventide is currently going through a sale at the moment. So if you're listening to this as the episode is released, be aware that Eventide still has the split EQ going on a flash sale at the moment. And very I'm going to cool. go with the split EQ because that EQ is still rocking and very amazing EQ. Absolutely. Absolutely. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. Doing so will get you weekly reminders about the Tuesday tips when they come out, and we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast. Send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the phrase, Mosley and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic of suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page, and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. And with that, I'll say see you next week. Have a good one, everybody.